Hi, and welcome back to another Voices. This is the Voices.network, and today it's episode 15, Occupy Troubling Times. Our guest is, uh, please introduce yourself. Hi, everybody. My name is Tatiana Moroz, and I'm a singer, songwriter, entrepreneur, and uh, freedom activist. Well, that pretty much covers it all. Uh, I, I want to get so. right into it because we've got a lot to cover today. Um, you are a pioneer. You are using Tatiana Coin. Did I say that correctly? That's right. Mm -hmm. uh, please tell us about it. It sounds like it's uh, a way to kind of get independent producers of content uh, control over their own media. Um, yes, absolutely. Um, it's actually a way for any creator of content. So even if you're assigned to a record label or something, it's not just for indie artists. Um, uh, basically, you know, I think before we explain Tatiana Coin, I think it's best to give your listeners a little bit of an overview of why Tatiana Coin. Because sometimes when you talk about technology, it is a little bit hard to understand why anybody would need that in the first place. So I like to tell my my story and. Um, maybe that'll help people understand why I ended up being a pioneer in fintech, which I never thought I would be in in my life. If you told me I would be in technology <laughs> five years ago, I'd tell you, no, you're lying. <laughs> um, so I, uh, I grew up in New Jersey, and you know, when I was younger, I had a lot of pretty profound experiences around music. My mom would play um, all those 60s and 70s protest singer-songwriters for me in the car, <laughs> And I remember listening to Cat Stevens' Peace Train and thinking, wow, this is something that could be uh, used, music is something that could be used to spread an idea, and how powerful is that? And as I got older and I read all these, you know, different dystopian novels and, you know, 1984 and Brave New World and scared the heck out of myself, <laughs> I, I wanted to contribute to mankind and help us organize ourselves in a way that was more equitable and, and um, just, uh, you know, not not in terms of redistribution of wealth, <laughs> but in the sense that um, that I want everybody to have access to the same um, opportunities and then, you know, be judged by their merit. Uh, so I eventually ended up in the liberty movement when I found out about the Federal Reserve, and I felt like the Federal Reserve was public enemy number one. So I became very interested in Austrian economics. I also started writing music for the liberty movement, including for, um, you know, performing in front of Ron Paul himself and, uh, you know, thousands of people around the country during the 2012 elections. But after seeing the way that he was treated by the um, established uh, Republican Party, as well as the media, as well as basically everybody else, you know, I didn't think that solutions were going to be found in politics. Uh, there's no incentive for government to give people back um, their freedom. Uh, it, their incentive is to take it because that makes them more powerful. Uh, around that time, I learned about Bitcoin. And when I first heard about Bitcoin, I thought, oh, my gosh, really, guys? Can we still stop talking about this? I mean, even though I knew about the Federal Reserve, I did not want to know about Bitcoin because it seemed boring to me and, and techy and hard. And I don't know. I just I was like, well, why can't I just use the dollar? Um, <laughs> so, uh, so what happened, though, was first of all, I bought some Bitcoins at $11. And then when they went up to like $100, I got a lot more interested in Bitcoin. <laughs> I was like, fine, maybe I'll give this a try. <laughs> Unfortunately, I sold it pretty early. You know, artists who always need money. But um, I, did, I did gain a, a, a deep appreciation for what the currency could do and what the technology could empower because, you know, as an artist that is political 
and as somebody who wants to unify humanity, those two things sort of go in, in diametric positions, right, because politics <laughs> can be very divisive. But the ideas um, of liberty are very prevalent in the, um, the, the, the function of Bitcoin and the spirit of Bitcoin, but I don't necessarily have to say, oh, I'm a libertarian, and then all the Republicans and, and Democrats will go running and screaming and say, you just like we. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I wanted to make Bitcoin a little bit more accessible, so I created a song called The Bitcoin Jingle, which people can actually listen to online. <laughs> I just put out the full album version. Um, so the Bitcoin jingle was something that expressed the ethos of the Bitcoin community of that liberty mindset in a fun way. And it kind of taught people about Bitcoin um, with a song and instead of with technology, which is hard. Um, after we created Tatiana, um, after, you know, I made that Bitcoin jingle, I became friends with Adam B. Levine, who um, has a podcast called Let's Talk Bitcoin. It's a very popular podcast. And he and I started talking about what are some solutions for artists. Because even though I went to Berkeley College of Music, which is a fancy school, and, you know, I was talented and I was working in major recording studios, it was still very difficult to make any headway in the music industry. Um, so to me, the main problems for artists were fans and funding, right? How do I make sure that I'm not playing to just the bartender and the waitress? And how do I record music so I can, you know, have something that represents my work and how can I create my art? Um, now for a while, I'm sorry, people... I'm, Go I'm ahead. getting that no. scene from Blues Brothers where they're where they're in some bar in the middle of nowhere. It's like, uh, and and hopefully we can get you to touch on what is life like on the road. Uh, oh well, yeah, I've actually got a song about that one. Um, but anyway, so we wanted to help artists. Okay, so you have crowdfunding which is a popular method, or Patreon. But when you donate to a crowdfund, and you, let's say you give them $50, you know, you get a T-shirt for that. Well, what if you don't like that T-shirt? What if you don't need another T-shirt? What if you don't wear T-shirts? Um, tough luck, because that's what you get at $50. But with an RS <laughs> coin, what you get is $50 worth of Tatiana coins. So they're like little mini digital gift certificates that you have. And you could spend them whenever you want in my store on whatever you want that, you know, $50 worth can buy. And you can also send it around and share it with your friends. So if you want to buy $50 worth of Tatiana coin, you can send $5 worth to your mom, $5 worth to your brother, $5 worth to your friend. And now you're basically acting as the great evangelizer for an artist that you have a direct connection to. You know, you're supporting me. You're helping me fund my work, sometimes even before it's been made. And you're also helping other people learn about it. Um, you also are given something that's transferable, so you actually have a lot more ownership. And then the second component is the social media aspect, right? When I first heard about Kickstarter, I'm not, not Kickstarter, uh, Friendster and MySpace and Facebook, I was really excited because, oh, wow, this is a great way that I can reach new people and, you know, with a very low budget. So um, as I went from platform to platform, though, I would lose fans and gain fans because the platform is the one that owns that relationship. And then when Facebook started charging all this money to reach my own fans, which is crazy because they're there for me, not for Facebook necessarily, um, <laughs> it became cost-preclusive to really utilize that platform. And I, and I realized that what we really need to do is have a direct connection with our fans that doesn't have a middleman. And that rela relationship is something that you can take with you. If you want to leave Facebook, you can't because you've got all your people there. And you can't write them all and tell them to leave with you because Facebook will block you. So the artist coin allows people who hold the tokens 
to, um, to communicate with you directly. We built a messaging layer. We have an entire platform where you kind of share music with your friends. You can have exclusive fan experiences. So if I want to do, you know, con con uh, concert from my PJs, you know, something intimate and fun and a little bit more um, nuanced than, you know, just a general performance, those real fans, they can get a chance to do that. And then we've created something called an artist token, which is basically like making a digital album online that has a finite quality. With the advent of digital technology, there's no more scarcity, right? There's no incentive for people to own music. You just get this big, massive consumption library, and the artist makes very little money off of that. Um, for a stream, if you have a million streams on one of those uh, streaming platforms, you get for a million streams, you get $1,000. Can you imagine a million times somebody plays your song and you get a thousand bucks? What are you gonna do with a thousand dollars? It's like barely rent, and um, for one month. <laughs> so uh, you know, at least in the New York area. Um, so what we've done is we've created these digital album tokens that have the same functionality as a CD. You know, when you used to have a CD, you could lend it to your friend, you could sell it at the CD store if you need something, whatever, um, and and you could do whatever you want with it. And so now with these digital album tokens, you're not violating copyright. Um, but you are able to actually own the music. So if you have a digital album token of my new record, Keep the Faith, you can lend it to your friend, but during that time you can't listen to it, just like a, a good in the, real, in the real world. So I think that by allowing fans and artists to connect directly, you're creating communities, and those communities can kind of vote with their, with their support of different artists, and then you get a wider breadth of um, art types, because right now, if you listen to the radio, the message is all the same. Party, 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 drink, 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 have sex all day, don't do anything productive. I mean, that's literally the message of every song on earth, <laughs> like on the radio anyway. Um, and I think we could do better. You know, there, there are things that have real deep meaning in our lives, and um, sometimes that's not what's going to get the record deal. That's not what's going to, you know, be the thing that you invest in, especially if you take, let's say, a contentious political position. For example, I'm staunchly anti-war. I'm a big supporter of Ross Ulbricht from the Silk Road. And he actually drew me for my birthday, and I used that picture as my album cover because, you know, I wanted to bring attention to the drug war and to the, to the lack of justice in his case. But if I was signed to a major record label, I wouldn't be allowed to do that because that's too controversial. You know, oh, God forbid, art, art pushes us to think about something. Let's not have that happen. Oh, no. <laughs> so uh, I think, you know, there's a lot of empowerment that comes with using cryptocurrencies. But um, I think music is a great way to, to teach people about that and get them involved because music is much more fun than technology or finance. <laughs> <laughs> We've got about nine minutes left in this section. Uh, the, the title to this show, again, was uh, Trouble in Times, and that's a line from Safe With You which I messed up how many different times before I finally got the right song name. Sorry about that. Uh, I really enjoyed the music, or the, the, the cuts that I've heard off of the album. Uh, that's scheduled to come out end of this month, isn't it? Yeah, at the end of the month. It's coming up so quickly, too, uh, <laughs> which is, of course, you know, <laughs> challenging in its own right. I just got back from a three-week tour, and... You know, it's always very exhausting to go out on the road and, and now to come back. I've got a lot of work to do. We're still raising money to help support the release of the album. We're about halfway there. So if people are liking what I'm putting down, they're, they're welcome to get their own Tatiana coins um, or pre-purchase the album or the artwork and stuff like that. So uh, we'll have, there's a lot of work to be done. We'll have links uh, with this 
uh, audio. Uh, one of the links is from NASDAQ. Uh, it's not often that you see a musician make NASDAQ headlines. Um, and the reason for that is, I guess you're the first, and you're opening up something that's really a chance to break out of the, what, five or six giant companies own uh, something like 90% of everything that you see, that you hear uh, through mass communications. Uh, can you talk about that a second? And we'll have a link to that article, too. Uh, sure. So I was very happy to be featured in NASDAQ. It actually came through an article that we did on Bitcoin Magazine, and NASDAQ picked it up because they're partners. So it was really neat, though, to be in both of them. I, I respect both publications, especially Bitcoin Magazine. I used to work there, and I love the team over there because, you know, it's a family-owned business, and they own this actually senior, you know, of course, the, the, the media industry is so um, – I don't know, it's just a big, big beast of insiders. What I love about BTC Media is it was started by my friend David Bailey, and they've uh, uh, you know, accrued several different media outlets, and they sort of are the voice of the community. And, you know, it, it's interesting to see how times are changing, how, you know, even people love or hate Trump, who cares? The point is, is that he's laughing and making fun of the mainstream media, and he should be because they're a disgrace. So um, having a little bit of disruption <laughs> to that and then also having a disruption to the music industry where, you know, I mean, the musical messages are extremely powerful. This is not lost on, the, uh, on our overlords, right? <laughs> there's an incentive uh, program based. I mean, there's a reason why. I mean, have you heard a single anti-war song on the radio in, in 15 years, even though we've been raging war and killing people for, for this long? I mean, not we. Uh, the government has. So yeah, there wasn't a whole lot of it in the election either. No, no, and nobody, nobody even talks about anti-war position. It's ridiculous, and that's actually a position that most Americans um, and actually world citizens believe in, right? Majority of people around the world are like, oh, man, I hope we get into another war. I'd love to send my son off to die. <laughs> uh, nobody thinks that, but yet somehow our music, you know, you've got a song like uh, Part of Me, I think that's the name of it, by Katy Perry, which is the most vulgar piece of propaganda I've ever seen in my life. It makes me loathe her, even though she's a very talented artist, but that was disgusting. And it's just a big glorification piece for war. And that's not, that's not what artists are supposed to be singing about. They're not supposed to be singing, oh, a guy broke up with me. I'm going to go and join the Marines. It's like, what? <laughs> I don't think you should do that, sister. Slow down. <laughs> you know, maybe a haircut. Let's start with that. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, I think that, you know, it's really exciting to be, trying to forge a new path, and I think that it's something that people understand on a deeper level, right? You know, you might go and enjoy some music at the club and stuff, but I think we all know that that's not feeding our souls, and our souls are hungry. We need something of, of value, and it's just not possible when these giant corporations have the bottom line in mind. And I don't begrudge companies uh, to make a profit. I think that's great. I'm a capitalist. But this is not capitalism. This is crony capitalism. And the, and the involvement of the government um, with our media and, you know, then the war division, I mean, this is a massive beast that we have to unseat. And we're very lucky that Satoshi Nakamoto, whoever he or she or they are, created this, like, legitimate tool to fight the power. We've got uh, about four minutes left in this section. And we'll have a link to blockchain technology, which is, I guess, what he invented. 
And it's yeah, about well, what as I would clear say is, um, as mud. <laughs> Can yeah, you help well, us no, with blockchain? I, think that, I don't think that people should look at Wikipedia for that. I think that's a mistake. Um, <laughs> there's, a, there's a Bitcoin white paper online, and it's not too long, and it's pretty easy to read. I also created a Bitcoin 101 video series with Stephanie Murphy. And if people want to learn about it in a video form, kind of have it playing in the back while you're doing dishes or something, because you can't absorb all the information at the same time anyway, I would recommend that. Um, also, a friend of mine, Andreas Antonopoulos, and um, the woman that he works with, Pamela Morgan, they both have really great talks about the subject. I mean, there's a lot of good work out there. People like Jeffrey Tucker. I love when Jeffrey Tucker talks about Bitcoin because he doesn't talk about the tech. He talks about the possibilities. And that's really where we, where we want to inspire people. We want to get their creative juices flowing and kind of wake them up and unshackle them from the chains that they've been forced to wear because of, you know, the, the circumstances that we find ourselves in. Now, I don't think it's too late to reverse the, the tides and take back the power. We've got about three minutes left, and we'll have links to that article. Hopefully you can send me the link to the better one than the Wikipedia article because it oh, hurt yeah, my sure. head trying to understand it. In uh, three minutes left, uh, there used to be kind of a giggle factor with Bitcoin. However, we've got a link to a story saying it's achieved gold parity. Um, good earned gold. Uh, can yeah. you react to that uh, in the last two minutes? This section. Oh sure. Um, I mean, I think that Bitcoin has a lot of properties um, that we've never seen in the money market before, and of course, Bitcoin itself is much larger than just a currency. So, sort of how silver has utility beyond just um, you know you can use it in different ways. Bitcoin has, I guess, a little bit of that quality as well. Um, I think that. You know, gold is a great store of value, but it's not very uh, portable. A friend of mine has a company called Voltoro, and what you can do is you can use Bitcoin to get in and out of the gold market. So they have actual vaults. It's not some stupid little paper ticket that says, I swear I'll give you some gold one day. Um, they have, you know, <laughs> vetted vaults around the world, and you can use your Bitcoin to buy gold, and you can store your value there. But let's say you need money quickly or Bitcoin's going up, you could switch it over to Bitcoin really quickly. Um, and I think that the, they're kind of good buddies, right? Because gold has a lot of the qualities that Bitcoin has, uh, but Bitcoin can move a lot faster than gold, which is great because lot, if you look at... A lot um, cheaper, too. Uh, if yeah, transfer absolutely. charges for the alternatives like credit cards or PayPal or fill-in-the-blank, uh, can you touch on that? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, right now we're in a little bit of a pickle with the blockchain because... This is something that's open source, and open source means everybody can kind of contribute to it and look at what's going on. Um, and that's very good, but sometimes it leads to like a little bit of a delay. So some of the Bitcoin transactions, whereas it used to be, you know, a penny to send money, now it's getting to be slightly more expensive, you know, 25 cents or something, just because there's like bloat on the network. Um, but that's changing. People are innovating around that, and there's com they're coming up with solutions. And either way, it's still much faster and more secure than the traditional banking system. And it doesn't require you to ask for permission. You know, if you don't have enough, like a lot of times if you want to open up a bank account, you have to spend, you know, you have to have a certain minimum or you have to have ID, or maybe you live somewhere where there's no banking services close by, or maybe you just don't want to be in the banking system. Well, now you have an option. 
there's 2 billion people in the world, billion with a B, that are underbanked, which means that they don't have access to banking service and, and financial services. And if you are a Chase customer, you think, good, I hate Chase. I don't want a bank account anyway. But you can't actually function if you don't have a bank account. You know, that's not going to work for you. Um, you can't dig yourself out of poverty if you have no way of storing value. You make yourself uh, vulnerable to, to different kinds of dangers and stuff. I mean, money is power straight out. And Bitcoin is, is giving the power back to anybody, anybody who has an Internet connection and even an SMS phone. You don't even have to have an iPhone. You can, you can have Bitcoin and have a bank on your phone. We're, uh, we're into our uh, next 20-minute segment, and this is actually about your music. We've been talking about economics and industry. Um, let's talk about music, please. And I dropped the microphone. Uh, can we? Uh, you've you've got, and we'll have it linked. A uh, crowdfunding with Tatiana Coin, and uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Why the crowdfunding? Well, because I have to get the word out, and putting on a record is not cheap. You know, that's the bottom line. When we first um, funded with Tatiana Coin in 2013, we raised um, ten thousand dollars approximately, and. You know, I use that to record the record, but there's a lot more that goes into record besides recording. You know, you have to do the mastering, you have to print it, you have to get the word out and um, through marketing efforts. Uh, but especially, you know, with a tour, I do a lot of different speaking tours and, you know, where I mix music and, and I talk a little bit about cryptocurrencies and my experiences. So, you know, there's a lot of different opportunities for people to support me and if they like what I'm doing I definitely could use the support because it's expensive to do all that stuff um, but the album itself is 12 songs it's the first album that I know of anyway that's funded completely with crypto and um, all the songs are my own except for one where I did a cover of Elton John's Skyline Pigeon which was a song that I learned from Jeffrey Tucker, who I credit with being, you know, one of my gateway drugs to Bitcoin. <laughs> so uh, I think that the record is really beautiful. It sort of sounds like a singer-songwriter pop record with, like, a country feel um, and with a lot of soul. So it's something that, you know, old people like, young people like, and, and I want music that way. Sometimes people scoff at, at the title of pop because they associate it with, you know, Britney Spears or something. But pop music is, is music that reaches a lot of people. It's popular. And I love the ability to reach a lot of different people and, and make music that's relatable to, you know, a seven-year-old girl to, like, your grandma or, you know, your uncle or something. So, and especially because I grew up, my, my mom and my dad, they got a divorce when I was 13, and it was really hard on me. And at the same time, I had these amazing artists. I had Jewel, and I had, um, you know, uh, oh, God, all of them are losing my mind, uh, Fiona Apple or Alanis Morissette. And these were good, positive role models for little girls. Right now, I don't think that there's anything like that. I mean, I wouldn't let my kid listen to Rihanna. Um, so I think that this music is something that has a little bit more depth and meaning, and it's also something that I think of as hopefully positive um, like as a positive influence uh, for people and, and especially, you know, younger people that are kind of looking to find their way in the world and they don't know which messages to listen to. Well, this is a counter to the traditional uh, brainwash and hopefully people will, will resonate with it because it's authentic. We're uh, 23 minutes into the hour and we'll have a link to some of your music. Uh, it's on your website. Uh, 
it, it gives people an idea of well, this isn't your first rodeo. You've been in the music business for a while now, uh, and you really do some interesting music. Um, we uh, we did an interview with uh, uh, I think you took a look at it with uh, Michael Graves. He used to be with Misfits, and uh, we were talking with him about politics and music. That was the title of that show. Um, did you have any thoughts on that? I had three links at the bottom of that page uh, that talked about uh, 60s music. Uh, one of those links was a YouTube of the Declaration by Fifth Dimension. Uh, second choice uh, was uh, uh, Rage Against the Machine, uh, Ballad of Tom Joad. And uh, third choice was a, a pretty new group to me out of uh, New Zealand, uh, Five Eyes. Um, any thoughts? Uh, what what can you do with music? Why is it? Why does the machine want to control musicians? Oh, isn't it obvious? Look at what happened in the '60s. They didn't want all that. There's all this equality. They've got to give women's rights out. They've got to, you know, like try and all these people saying to end the war and all this nonsense. Government doesn't like that. Why would they like that? They want to have people separated. They want to have control. There's no incentive for the state to have dissenting voices. This is throughout history, dissenting voices are stifled. And throughout history, music has a distinct role in, in being a, a dissenting voice. Uh, same thing with you know, visual art and all that stuff. Um, I don't really get too conspiratorial, but I think that one would be naive to think that um, the government didn't have something to do with uh, different kinds of mysterious deaths of, of artists. I know that sounds totally wild, but look at they were definitely following um, John Lennon around, right? They've admitted to assassinating or, or ha having a hand in the death of, um, oh my God, Martin Luther King. So the government is not above and beyond that, that kind of behavior. I mean, this is clandestine stuff because I think that they know who is more powerful, um, in, you know, the Beatles or Nixon, right? I mean, nobody likes Nixon. Nobody likes the president as much as they like the Beatles. Sorry. <laughs> and and that's dangerous. They can't have that hmm, person who or, or musician that's sort of in charge of the mental state of the country because music has such a big influence on how we think. So it seems only natural to me that that type of a dissenting voice is stifled. I really loved that interview with Michael. Um, I had heard about him quite extensively from Zach Carter, and I, but I didn't really know too much about the Misfits because I wasn't really into punk music. So I thought, okay, he's probably cool. But I loved what he was saying, especially about how Sid Vicious was sort of a mediocre bass player who got all this glory but was made, you know, a very destructive force in the band, whereas the ethos behind uh, the punk movement was, you know, pretty libertarian and, and very independent. Um, and then it kind of got muddied with, with all this extra drama, which is unfortunate because the message, I think, you know, is what was authentic. Um, so, I mean, we have a long history of this, and, and now that people can reach each other through the Internet, you know, the Internet is a very dangerous tool to the state um, mm. and to, to the overlords, so to speak, because now they can't control the flow of information. Previously... Their propaganda worked very well, and they only had three stations, and that's what you would watch, and you could basically indoctrinate people, not only through the education system, but through culture, as we mentioned. 
Um, whereas now with the Internet, you don't even need to send your kids to school if you want. I mean, people can be homeschooled, and um, there's just all sorts of options out there that were never available. And that's, that's very scary and disruptive to the existing power structures, and it should be. You know, I'm glad that it is. Let them, let them feel the fear that all of us feel because we don't know with certainty what's going to happen with our financial system because they keep messing with it. You know, um, I think that there's, there's a lot of power in art and in our ability to fight back, especially now that we've got all these technological advancements to help us. Troubling Times is the title for this show, and that's the line from Help Me Here, Safe With You. Did I get it right this time? I'm not looking at my notes. Yep, that's right. Safe with you. That's the first, you, you know, the first single for the album was uh, the Bitcoin jingle. Um, and I think of that as a song that really belongs to the community. Um, but Safe With You is the first song that we released. It's sort of a real single. And it's been very well received. And I look forward to kind of getting some more reviews of the new record. I, I wrote Safe With You when I was out on the road. And you asked earlier, you know, what, what that's like. Well, it's, it's a lot harder than you think, and no one gives you any sympathy. No one cares. You can complain about being on the road, and every person that works at a desk job is like, screw you. <laughs> um, so, but, but there are a lot of challenges. You know, I meet so many incredible people, and then I have to leave them. And so you make these relationships with people, and then you have to, have to go, which is not good. And, um, and so that song specifically I wrote about a guy that I had met. You know, I thought, oh, this is going to be the big one, right? Yeah, right. But I got a really good song out of it. And, and it kind of expresses the challenges of being out on the road, and you don't know who's really your friend. And not everybody has good intentions either, right? Um, mm. So it, it can wear you down physically, spiritually, mentally. And uh, sometimes, you know, you just want to, feel like you belong to someone and and that's what that song was about because you need somebody to look out for you and you need somebody to kind of help you with some of the the heavy weight that you're carrying around while you're trying to in my case sing a message of freedom how do you keep keep the faith which is another title how, how do you keep yourself alive like that when you're cut off on the road um, any advice well, for people that feel isolated so you know, it's an interesting story about Keep the Faith. I wrote Keep the Faith while I was down in Chile, and uh, there was this big scam project, and I was trying to warn everybody about it, and no one believed me, and, you know, they, they maligned me and said, oh, you know, you're overreacting, you're being dramatic. But in reality, there was over $10 million stolen from people through this horrible, um, you know, for lack of a better term, scam. And that land project was built around libertarian ideals. It was supposed to be this you know, Randy in paradise or whatever. And instead, it turned into a living nightmare where a lot of people lost their life savings. And no matter how much I tried to raise the alarm, um, even to people that I really respected, that I thought had the same values as I did, you know, I was crushed to learn that they didn't and that they didn't really practice what they preach. And it made me feel as if there was no point to doing this anymore. You know, why am I trying to save these jerks? They don't even care about, like, doing the right thing in the first place. This place is hopeless. I'm going to go worry about my own stuff and stop sacrificing. Because let me tell you something. It's not really easy to be, you know, have a, have a strong position and be an activist artist, right? It's a lot easier to, you know, put on a short skirt and shake it. That, that's, that's how you make it in the music industry. But, um, you know, I, I have these stronger beliefs, and 
at the end of the day, even though I felt like I was very traumatized by that experience, um, I chose to keep the faith because, well, one reason is because I don't know who else I would be. I, I'm, I've always <laughs> been, in, in one way it's a good thing, but in another way it's kind of annoying, you know, unfortunately myself, right? I, I have different, um, I guess a different way of looking at things. Um, a lot of people will be willing to kind of take these sort of, uh, oh, well, you got to make money, you have to be more stable. And, and I think about those things, but I always try and live my life following passion and, and what I believe is the right thing to do. So at the end of the ordeal down in Chile, I decided you know, to write this song called Keep the Faith because that's what it was, right? I had to keep the faith because I can't be dissuaded by the slings and arrows. I have to keep going. And this is a very deep life purpose that I felt very distinctly since I was a child. Uh, mm -hmm. It's something that I connect to. And, you know, people ask me sometimes if I'm religious, and I'm not. I wouldn't say so. And I don't even know where, what's going on with God. But I like to think that God is out there. And um, when I was in ninth grade, I did a play called Godspell. I don't know if anybody knows the knows it, but it's a really cool kind of hippie, very improv -y play. And at the end of the show, we were you know, there's this big dramatic song and the big dramatic scene. We're all singing, you know, and we're holding up the Jesus figure. And, and I remember looking out into the audience singing and tears streaming down my face because this to me was a religious experience. And, and I just, I can't be anybody else, right? Um, and I don't think that the bad people should keep us from doing the right thing. And that's not always popular and sometimes it can make things more difficult for you. But... Each person's stand for integrity and each person's, you know, move to, to bring others into the light is exactly that. It's a way to bring other people um, guidance and, and a way to bring people closer together and closer to good, whether that's, you know, Allah or, you know, whatever other Jesus and, you know, all the different names for, for God. Like, we have, I think, an inherent sense of, of the right thing. And when other people do the right thing, it makes it easier for us to do the difficult task of, and, and sometimes it is hard um, to do the right thing. About uh, six minutes left in this section, and you mentioned you were in Chile. Uh, isn't that kind of unusual for, for the old model of music? You seem to have crossover international. Um, any thoughts on that? Well, when I was in Chile, I was there for a land project because we were trying to build this libertarian paradise. So it didn't really have that much to do with music as much as it had to do with culture. Um, and we're, you know, unfortunately the thing turned out to be a scam. But my goal was to capture that in content and show rather than tell. So instead of telling people about libertarian philosophy, you can show how it's working. You can make it exciting and fun for people because it's been exciting and fun for me. I've met so many interesting, innovative people over the years, and and I want to share that with other people. Um, so it doesn't really have that much to do with music. It's all basically based around the idea that we own ourselves, peaceful, voluntary um, interaction, and you know, do unto others as you would want them to be done to you, right? Don't be a jerk and don't rip people off. I mean, these are pretty basic things. You would, you would think they'd be easier to achieve. Um, so uh, I think that all these things meld together for me. And then, you know, with the record, um, that was sort of the crystallization of all my realizations and the lessons that I've learned and hopefully I can impart to others. We're uh, 
got about four minutes left in this section. What did you learn from the people of Chile? Did you get to interact with with normal people in Chile? Uh, do you speak the language so you could actually communicate to them? Uh, what, um, what, what? No, I speak Spanish, but it's really Italian, and I tell people in Spanish <laughs> Italian words, and I expect them to know what I'm talking about, and I get frustrated. <laughs> like, how, why don't you know what molto bene means, you know? Um, <laughs> how dare you? This is my perfect Spanish. No, my Spanish is a joke. But as I, um, I, I learn pretty quickly, but I'll tell you, I, I did six weeks of Italian in Florence when I was in college, and right. it's been sort of a struggle <laughs> to learn any other languages because they're all kind of similar. Uh, but at the same time, you know, when I go someplace, I, I pick it up after a while. I, I love the Chilean people. I, I found the entire experience to be pretty traumatic, so it was hard to enjoy the beauty of the country. But the people there are so nice. I made a lot of very good friends while I was there, even though it was during a very limited time. And I hope to go back there soon. Um, I wouldn't say that I would go there for the cooking, but the wine is pretty pretty incredible, and the views are just um, so, so nice. There's such a diversity in the land there. And, um, of course, yeah, the people are super warm. Uh, Chile used to be uh, kind of socialist, and now it's going back in that direction. But for a while, they had a lot of um, a lot of influence with Austrian economics and, and sort of, you know, like a different approach to how they run their country. And I think that's why they've been so prosperous. And it's great to go to Santiago because they've got these huge skyscrapers and it's in the middle of these beautiful um, mountains with, you know, snow on top. It's just a, a very gorgeous city with very warm people. And I hope I get to go back again soon. have got about two minutes left in this section. I wanted to touch on uh, basically the libertarian philosophy comes out of what used to be called classical liberalism and those are supposed to be based on universal truths inalienable truths did you find that the people you were talking to in Chile uh, resonated with with the message that you were trying to trying to get across well you know that's interesting because I, I do think of liberty as something that's international although I didn't really get to engage with the uh, Chileans in, in that level right um, yeah. but I went for a tour throughout uh, Europe with, actually Eastern Europe, with Lynn Ulbricht. And my mom is from Poland, and I remember when I was little, I said to her, you know, of course, always thinking how to save the world. I said, Mom, you know, why don't we all just put our money in a pile and people take what they need and then, uh, yeah, that's it, that's it. She's like, no, Tanya, that's communism and it doesn't work. <laughs> so, you know, I had to go back to the drawing board. And... It was my first time I've been to Poland, you know, 20 times, 30 times or something in my life. And I went there with Lynn Ulbricht, obviously Ross's mom, and we were talking about the challenges that she faces and the, the precedents being set by that case. And what was wonderful was her ability to um, resonate with the Polish people and the Czech people. We were also in Prague. And because those are countries that have been oppressed. These are countries that have, you know, suffered under Russian rule. They've seen the damage that communism can do. They're also very freedom-minded as a result. And I think it's been really incredible seeing just that this is a universal value. And as I've become more, you know, anarchy-leaning, and I wouldn't sound completely there per se, but, you know, I'm, I'm pretty close, uh, although I, I have an, an eye for the practical um, I think that, you know, there's a lot of things that American values are actually 
values that anybody can engage with. So you don't have to be an American citizen to be an American in your heart. And what does that mean? That means, you know, work hard, the American dream, justice, freedom of the press, freedom of speech. Um, these are rights that we're losing very quickly, but at the same time, there's something that made America great, and this is what made everybody want to be an American, right? Uh, and it's unfortunate that we've lost that luster and we've lost our position in the world in terms of being a leader in that regard. But at the same time, I don't think that it's something that has to be limited to our country. You know, there are people that, are, that believe in freedom all over the world, and it's really great when you get to see um, the ways that people are experimenting and trying to find solutions. You know, different places have different kinds of innovation happening, uh, but the goal, it seems, is, is being tapped into, which is freedom, privacy, security, and uh, independence. All men are created equal. Uh, 20 minutes left in the section, uh, in the show. Uh, we've got a link to Silk Road, and Silk Road uh, kind of brings us back to you. We were talking about touring with Ross. Uh, your cover art, is that for this album? Uh, can you tell us about that? We'll sure. Um, so Ross Albrecht is, is a really important person in my life. Um, I remember when I first heard about him at one of the Bitcoin conventions, my first real Bitcoin convention, and I was thinking, why is this guy selling drugs on the internet? I didn't care about this, right? Um, but I became very good friends with his mother, Lynn Albrecht. And when you hear a mother's story about how her son is in prison, you can't help but be moved by it, even if you have a heart of stone. I mean, it was heart-wrenching, and it really put um, an emotional component to something that, you know, you read a headline, you say, oh, whatever, and, you know, oh, that sucks for that guy, and then that's basically all you think about, right? Because mm-hmm. most of us, you know, well, actually, I don't even know if this is true, but a lot of us don't know anybody who's in prison, and, and it's almost like anecdotal stories where we watch TV, and we think, oh, well, it's just like on Ally McBeal, this is the justice system, or it's just like The Wire, uh, you know, and, and these are still TV shows at the end of the day. When you meet somebody whose son is facing double life plus 40 years in prison for all nonviolent crimes, well, that's no joke. And as a result of being so moved by Lynn and, and carrying on a correspondence with Ross while he's in prison, uh, I decided to write The Silk Road because this case was really a political case. This is something about uh, libertarian values and the belief in self-ownership, and that's very, very threatening to the state. So I believe that Ross is 100% a political prisoner because what he did was he created a free market website. Now, let's, let's back it up so some people don't really know about the Silk Road. Um, a lot of people think that the Silk Road, because they watch the news, is, oh, you know, they have guns there and all this stuff. Well, the Silk Road was actually very strict about what they permitted, and the ethos was you have to have – it has to be something that only harms you or, or it's basically you have ownership over your own body. So if people wanted to buy drugs, well, you know what, that's their business. It's not mine. And, and what it did was it ended up being a harm reduction tool. So um, the drug trade is obviously, as it gets driven more underground, as it becomes a black market, you know, that's when all the violence happens. And that's when all the danger happens because obviously drugs are bad, right? People shouldn't do drugs. But guess what? People have been doing them since the beginning of time. So <laughs> even though the Silk Road set out to be just a strict free market, so people were selling, you know, medicine or Bibles, you know, some countries you can't get a Bible, it's illegal. Um, 
But, you know, as far as the drug thing goes, it ended up being a significant harm reduction tool. When you try and go to, um, when you try and go to, sorry, my cat's like going crazy. <laughs> I'm, I'm <laughs> cat thing for my grandma. Um, so, you know, when you go to a uh, drug deal, right, it's very dangerous. You're going to a crappy neighborhood. Somebody might have a gun. You might get shot. Uh, and also the drugs that you might get are very bad. So obviously we don't want our loved ones to be doing heroin. Bad idea. But isn't it better that they're doing heroin that has a five-star rating versus the two-star rating stuff that's cut with God knows what and then they overdose and die on the floor? Um, they did studies on the Silk Road after the fact, and it showed that it reduced the harm of, um, of drug use significantly. I mean, uh, I heard a statistic of you're five times less likely to die if you use a Silk Road. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, that sounds like a weird kind of slogan, but this is a significant impact. And if people have lost their families to the drug war, they'll know that, you know, some of these deaths could have been avoided. These people needed treatment. And a lot of our prison population, which is, you know, well over 2 million people in this country of the land of the free, uh, are in there for all nonviolent crimes, you know. And, and these are people that are targeted a lot of times because they're poor, because they live in the ghetto, because nobody will speak up for them. So what happened was is that Ross was arrested as the alleged founder of the Silk Road, and he had sort of an alias called the Dread Pirate Roberts. And to be clear, we don't exactly know what happened because Ross has never been really given a fair trial, so we can't really tell, um, you know, what exactly his role was in this, right? Uh, they used a lot of different digital evidence to convict him. Now, digital evidence is obviously able to be manipulated, so that's a problem, right? Because if you can just have the government being in charge of how uh, how evidence is presented, you know, they can manipulate it all they want. I mean, I can't imagine who would think that they would do that, but yes, they do that. <laughs> and, um, you know, they illegally found a server in Iceland, which is questionable because are we allowed to just go and invade other countries' servers and just break into them? I don't think so. And one of the key components was, is Ross the only... Uh, Dread Pirate Roberts. If people have seen The Princess Bride, they know that the references to the Dread Pirate Roberts, and the whole thing about the Dread Pirate Roberts was that he was multiple people. He was this guy one year, the next year he gave on the crown to somebody else. So to suggest that Ross was the only person involved in the Silk Road, which again, allegedly, um, because he's appealing his case, uh, is ridiculous because after he was in prison, this just came out a few months ago after he's been in appeal and everything, um, somebody was logging in as the Dread Pirate Roberts after Ross was already in prison. And I'm not really sure how he was able to do that if he was in solitary during that time. I mean, it's ridiculous. So there's obviously other people involved. Uh, with the case, they found two corrupt agents that are now behind bars that collectively stole over one in, uh, over a million dollars from the very site that they were supposed to be investigating. They were extorting people. And after Ross's appeal just happened the other day, uh, I'm sorry, in, in October, we found out that there was a third corrupt agent, and we have evidence that the digital evidence was tampered with. Um, the fact that the digital evidence was admitted in the first place is ridiculous, but the fact that corrupt agents knowingly had access to that should make that evidence not valid in the first place. Another thing that people may not know about is that they seized Ross's laptop. So we have the Fourth Amendment, and, you know, when you have to get a search warrant, you can't say, oh, I want the whole file cabinet. No, you have to say, I need the file marked banking stuff, whatever, right? Um, with Ross, they didn't get the right warrant, and they rifled through his entire laptop. 
you can't just like that's like a file cabinet on steroids. You can't just take somebody's laptop and go through everything um, without a warrant. And um, I think that there's a lot of issues with with the way that that was handled that will have implications for people in the future because we've basically eradicated the Fourth Amendment if we're going to allow this type of, um, oh, well, you know, it's okay kind of attitude. No, it's not okay. We need to get back to our roots and and not allow for this kind of exploitation um, by the all-powerful Justice Department to, you know, suspend any kind of reasonable assumption that that we have, you know, rights in this country. And, And I think that we need to. And the other thing is is that so many people are in prison, but there's no voice for them. So I think of Ross's case as this sort of, you know, catalyst where we can actually get other people's um, stories heard as well. There's so many people in the prison. When I've gone and visited with Ross in person, I've seen children crawling on their daddies saying, Daddy, Daddy, when are you coming home? Crying when they're being pulled out of there away from their father's arms. Meanwhile, the mothers are sitting there saying, oh, you know, my kid, they used to get straight A's, and now they're getting D's and F's, and it's all all since, you know, my husband's gone to prison. And I understand, you know, there has to be some sort of punishment if there's a crime, whatever. I mean, that's debatable how we administer that punishment. Um, But you can't tell me that these people can't have ankle bracelets and be contributing to society, maybe making reparations to the people that they've harmed. There's no benefit to having them in the prison industrial complex except for the proprietors of the prison industrial complex and all the people that benefit from it. Um, I I, I don't think that it's an exaggeration to say that it is slavery um, because these people are basically thrown in jail. My one friend, check this out, he is a, his father sold a tablespoon of cocaine in 1984 to his girlfriend. It was a setup. And now he's been in prison. He got sentenced to four years. He's still in prison for a tablespoon of cocaine. I mean, are you kidding me? If that's not a gross abuse of power, I don't know what is. It's sickening. It's unacceptable. And I'm honored to be friends with uh, Lynn and Ross and Callie and the entire Ulbrich family because this is bigger than just us. Uh, this is something that affects millions of people, not only in this country, but around the world. The U.S. is very overzealous. They go around and they prosecute people from other countries that have never even stepped foot in this country. And is this a really good use of resources? I mean, I don't think so. I mean, I don't think so. Sounds like a control issue, too. Uh, Kim.com, uh, his case comes to mind. Uh, overzealous prosecution, um, prison for profit. Um, it's, it's something that's going to have to be taken a look at, and I, I think that's it's good to hear that not only are you doing music, but you're doing journalism. Um, that that was what I got as the takeout from from your interview with uh, Lynn. Um, keep the faith. How is she doing? Oh, Lynn is a wonderful, incredible human being. I mean, it's no wonder that she raised such wonderful children. Um, she's very strong. It's very difficult. Uh, when we first went on tour together in uh, Prague and Poland, I was surprised because her sister came, another awesome member of the family, <laughs> and uh, and I got like a peek behind the curtain, and it's really a full-time job, nonstop, morning to night. Ross is in jail. How are we going to get him out? How are we going to solve this impossible problem? And between, you know, legal bills and the strain on the family and, of course, seeing Ross in there, it's obviously very difficult, but her strength is what inspires so many people, and I think that she, 
gets a lot back from people um, showing their support. I mean, any talk that I've ever seen her speak, you know, 50% of the audience is crying by the end of it because it's so heartbreaking. But that's what makes it so important. You have to touch somebody. You have to kind of shake them, and that's how we're going to get change. So we're very lucky, and I don't think that the government foresaw such a formidable foe, uh, an adversary uh, that they've created with a mother. And, and what is it based off of? It's based off of a mother's love, and she will never quit. She will never stop. Um, and luckily, Ross is such an incredible young man. The way that he's handled being in prison is nothing short of remarkable. Um, he t tutors lots of students. He's helped them get into college. He teaches yoga classes. He participates and, and sort of has like a really good influence where he is. And he reads constantly. He's educating himself. He works out. He meditates. He's doing... Um, all sorts of, uh, you know, weird dreams things. I mean, he's got a lot of time on his hands. But his <laughs> attitude about it and his, um, his optimism, his strength, his integrity, and the way that, you know, anytime I see him, he's always got a smile on his face. And I don't know people in the outside world that can do that. And to me, that underlines, you know, we, we put ourselves in prisons with our society. And in a way, I can connect with Ross more deeply than I can with somebody on the outside. So... There are a lot of lessons to be learned through his experience. I, I recommend that people go to freeross.org, and under the blog section, you know, three or four posts down is this. It's a letter from Ross from the prison, and it includes a poem called Invictus, and it's basically a whole thing about integrity and strength of character in the most adverse times. And I know that I read that when I'm feeling down and when I feel like I, I have no hope because he is that ray of hope and. If anybody should be hopeless, it's a guy with double life plus 40-year sentence. And, oh, let's not forget the $183 million fine, because that seems realistic, uh, that the government has levied against him. I mean, are they kidding me? At, at 13 like, cents an hour is what he gets paid for prison labor. Yeah, he'll, like be, yeah he'll need those double life plus 40 years <laughs> in order to get out and get, pay that back. I mean, it's ludicrous. It's not going to happen. And it's not. it's a miscarriage of justice. This is not a, you know, a proportionate sentence for, for the crime. It's ridiculous. And, in, and I'm glad that it's ridiculous because it helps us bring more attention to how illegitimate our justice system is and how illegitimate a government that prosecutes innovators. I mean, you don't see Jeff Bezos going to jail. Jeff Bezos is a guy from Amazon. He doesn't go, go to jail even though they've found, you know, they've sold cyanide to people. They've uh, sold things to terrorists and stuff like that. Um, this is a strictly political case, and it has implications. Transferred intent is one of the one of the phrases that they use, and what they're saying is is that a website owner is responsible for the actions of all the people on their website, which is insane. You can't do that. But there's selective prosecution. You don't see Craigslist going to jail just because there were some murderers on their site. Um, and I think that you know Ross Ross really got a raw end of the deal, but hopefully. In the long run, this is going to have a positive impact and help millions of people instead of just him. Got uh, five minutes left. Ross did do that picture that's your cover art, right? Did I? Is, am I yes. right? Yes, isn't that? it beautiful? He did such a nice job. And the real actual um, artwork, which I have hidden away, is um, <laughs> quite beautiful. Even though it's, it's, you know, he has very poor materials in prison, so it's very, very light. So the only thing that we did was, you know, we adjusted the coloring a little bit, and then. It's a really great talking point. People will say, well, why do you have this weird drawing of yourself? I mean, it's not weird. It's a nice drawing. But if people wonder, I can say, well, let me tell you about my friend in prison <laughs> who did it from prison. And 
I mean, that's super rock and roll in my opinion. Um, Keep the faith. Yeah, exactly. And and I think that it's, you know, I'm I'm happy to have him on the team for sure. And I'm on I'm on his team. You know, I'm a big supporter and I I have yet to Ross may be one of the most incredible people. He is hands down one of the most incredible people I've ever had the pleasure of meeting and you know, it, this is this is something that I think other people um identify with, which is why he has so much support. About 4 minutes left. Um you really do good journalism and this coming from a reporter hopefully the artist coin concept kind of starts supporting independent journalism too there's a lot of good reporters out here that aren't getting coverage um any thoughts on that quickly well yeah i mean (laughs) people are all talking you know trump is a mixed bag right some good things some bad things some people love him some people hate him uh or love him so the thing that I think is really interesting and fun about him is that he called out the media. He says, you're all fake news. And that's totally true. Um, and now we've got the power. You know, there's a song on my new album called um, Make a YouTube Video. And it's all about, you know, call up a friend, send a message, speak it, you know, tweet it up or make a YouTube video. Speak of your mind with education, the knowledge it starts to grow. And while I think that we have some challenges with alternative media in terms of journalistic standards and, um, you know, proper procedure before you just randomly publish something without any evidence, uh, we do have a, a larger voice being given to the citizens. And sometimes they have a better influence on how things are, you know, like how things should be. They have, they have different values than, you know, the head of CNN. I mean, CNN's like Clinton News Network. Uh, it's a total joke. So I think that we're, uh, we're at a time where citizen journalism is on the rise, and hopefully it will continue to do so and not necessarily get hijacked. Uh, I like doing journalism. I guess I don't really think of myself as a journalist, but I do have a podcast with Tatiana Show, and I do a lot of different interviews with people, and I try and focus on ways where people can learn about this new stuff without being terrified. Well, it was really good reporting um, that you did, and and it's good that I, a lot of the stories we're working right now, I see the mother of Serena Shim, a journalist, American journalist that was killed, can't get any kind of a follow-through on how she was killed. Um, I see the mother wow. of political prisoners. Um, you're, you're a voice for them. What do you have to say for the mothers uh, who are listening now? Because they're heroes. They didn't do anything. They committed no crime. Um Final thoughts in the last two minutes here on speak to the mothers. Um, You know, I think I'll say to them the same thing that I say to everybody because I can't begin to imagine what that is like for somebody. But we none of us know what will happen in the world. And actually, Ross wrote me, you know, Tatiana, it's not important what happened to you or what happened with me, really. I don't want you to be upset because as long as we're alive, there is reason to hope. And keep the faith is about that about the reason to hope. And and all we can really do is we barrel on this, you know, planet in the middle of nowhere, sitting in space, we can only try and do our best and try and do the right thing. And I encourage people to find, um, you know, uh, some salve for, for their soul through connecting with other people and trying to set things that were wrong and hopefully finding some peace in that, in that, um, action. Do you know what I mean? Yes, I do. And I think you're saying it very well, which is really kind of what reporting is supposed to be. 
I think that kind of gets lost in the shuffle. We've got 30 seconds left. Say something optimistic, please. Um, I don't know. I don't know what my optimistic thing is. I got all I got all frazzled. I think I've been trying to be optimistic the whole time. Um, but I would love people to, to come and support my music. And if you like what I'm doing and you have resources, even if they're not financial, uh, you know, if you have a friend or some artist that might be responsive to this message, you know, join the revolution. Uh, people don't have to sit at home and wallow in their misery and be depressed that the world is falling apart. There are actions that we can take, and I hope that people join me in the fight for freedom. That's it. We've got uh, that's that's all the time we've got. Hopefully, we can get you back. Um, we'll have links to a lot of the things we talked about. Uh, thank you. Uh, thanks so much for being here. Keep doing what you're doing, please. And uh, we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed myself. Hope to come back soon. <laughs>